This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to this one. I have recently gotten back in touch with an old and dear friend, John Schneider, who has been labeled by Human Events as a senior rights, second right amendment rights activist in Washington. And uh, he's been called a champion of the right to self-defense. And even the Washington Post and New York Times labeled him as the dean of gun lobbyists in the D.C. area. Uh, John and I go back further than either one of us would probably want to admit. But uh, we both worked with the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. In fact, I was one of the founders of the Citizens Committee and served on their board for about 30 years. During that time, uh, John was serving as a director of the uh, Second Amendment Foundation, well, actually treasurer of the Second Amendment Foundation. He was the public affairs director of the Citizens Committee and has always done great work. When you needed to ask a question about the Second Amendment, you consulted the Oracle, and that was John Snyder. And, Don, it's good to have you have you with me today. Mike, it's good to good to hear your voice, and it's good to be with you again after all these years. Look, I'm really looking forward to our time together. Uh, me too, and and you know we've got. I've been doing a lot of work on the Second Amendment recently. I don't know if you've had a chance to glance at my blog. I've been working on the veterans' issues, the way they're being denied their Second Amendment rights, and now they're expanding that to Social Security recipients. And we'll get into that a little later in the show. But the the big news right now that's breaking is the shooting in Oregon, of course, that we had in a gun-free zone. And I wrote an article on my blog at michaelconnelly.jigsy.com said gun-free zones are death traps. Give me your take on, on the gun-free zones in this country and how dangerous they are. Well, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about the, about the fact that you're right on that. You know, uh, Professor John Lott and others have done a lot of studies on these gun-free zones, ac- academic studies over the years, and they have found that the, uh, the mass shootings uh, occur in these gun-free zones. And it's, it's, it's sort of in, interesting to see why, and it's really, it's really quite understandable. Uh, people, uh, people who will know about a gunsy, so-called gun-free zone know that uh, legitimate citizens, even legitimate law-abiding citizens, generally cannot carry a firearm in that, uh, in that area. So they're unable to, pre- to protect themselves or others from people who don't care about the law anyway and are willing to kill and murder and wound as many people as possible. Um, it's, it's actually a no-brainer when you get right down to it. Uh, criminals and others who want to do mayhem are going to do where they're not, are going to do that where they're not going to be stopped. <laughs> no, no, no big uh, question on that, you know. So. Uh, that's the situation, but of course, every time one of these one of these occurs, the uh, the promoters of various restrictions on firearms and other other uh, restrictions also cite this as a as a reason for more and more restrictions. So they've got a completely backward, in my opinion, and it's it's just something that never stops, and it has it's something we have to keep enlightening the people about and uh, fighting and. It seems that it seems that people are wising up to this propaganda because uh, the uh, the 
polls keep showing now that there are more and more people favoring the rights of citizens, and the 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 numbers of people who are favoring more and more government controls keep going down. So uh, it's just a never never un, never ending battle, and we just have to keep at it. Seems to me. Well, more and more Americans are, are buying guns now. I think we have the highest percentage of gun ownership in this country we've ever had. And, uh, right, the, yeah. The, the highest percentage in the last month or two of people who have applied uh, through the National Instant Criminal Background Checklist to purchase firearms, which I think That's is right. You see that as an indication that, that people are getting very nervous about what's going on and they need to protect themselves because uh, the police are not allowed to protect them? Sure, I think people are getting very concerned. It's also an indication that the people more and more are just thumbing their noses at the government and saying saying to the government officials like the president and others, we simply don't believe you. We don't we don't buy your nonsense. We we know you're not doing us any good, you're doing us harm, and we're just not going to listen to you and uh, try to find the ability to uh, protect ourselves as much as possible. Well, actually, even some police in the in the country uh, have uh, have indicated that they're not going to not going to enforce some of these laws on the on the state and local level because they're unenforceable. Yeah, that's. Uh, I work with a group uh, through the United States Justice Foundation. I am an advisor to a group called the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Richard Max Group. And basically, we helped them about oh, about eighteen months ago, draw up a declaration where they yeah, just flat came out and said, and this was signed by hundreds of law enforcement officers and sheriffs and all around the country. That said, we not only will not enforce federal gun control laws in our counties and our cities, we will not allow the federal government to come in and enforce them. So that's yeah. pretty much a line in the sand, and I I totally agree with what they're doing. Oh yeah, I, I I think that a lot of people in in government offices don't realize uh, the, the the degree of anger on the part of the average American citizens to what is going on in government uh, on, on the part of government re, in regard to its activities against the citizens, not only in the area of firearms ownership and, and regulation, but in other areas as well. People are really getting fed up with the government. They really are. It's just amazing. I keep hearing from people all over the country on this, including and especially from a lot of law enforcement officers. You know, I'm on the boards of a couple of uh, law enforcement organizations, which are headquartered in Florida, but are national organizations, and uh, it's just amazing to hear on the part of rank-and-file officers and also on the part of chiefs and sheriffs how disgusted they are with the government. It's just amazing. Well, I know you set up a group of your own now that uh, is dealing with some of these issues. Tell us about that. What is your organization? Well, you know, I retired from the uh, Citizens Committee for the right to keep and bear arms at the end of 2011, and uh, I... uh, I keep active uh, with the uh, police organizations, and I have a, I have a website called gunrightspolicies.org. 
And I also, years ago, uh, founded and still am chairman of a group called the St. Gabriel Placenti Society, Incorporated. That's named for uh, an Italian saint, an actual saint, who used handguns in 1860 to rescue a group of villagers in Isola, Isola del Garnsasso, Italy, from a gang of cutthroats uh, who were who were renegades from Garibaldi's army and uh, we're pro- promoting him as patron of handgunners so i keep very active i also i also i also do a lot of uh, news releases through expertclick.com and also do a lot of uh, videos uh, which are available th- through the website yeah it's a great website i would encourage everybody to take a look at it and you also read a book called gun saint is that available through the website or how can people get a hold of that well, if, if people go on the website, they can find they can find an ad right on the website that tells them how to go about obtaining that. That's that's a book about Saint Gabriel Placenti and describes his uh, his familiarity with all kinds of uh, firearms, especially handguns, and his, his ability to use them well. Yeah, and I wasn't aware that you had written that book, but I'm definitely going to order a copy so I can read it. It sounds fascinating, and. Uh... So I'm going to take a look at that now. Oh. One of the things that, that we need to talk about, too, is we get the knee-jerk response from the liberals uh, whenever anything like the shooting uh, in Oregon happens. And, of course, they start calling for more gun control. And as I point out in my blog article, the group called Every Town for Gun Safety, which is part of Bloomberg's operation. Mm-hmm. Came, did this so-called study where they said that only 14% of mass shootings in the U.S. occurred in gun-free zones. Now, what they kind of, you know, call gun-free zones includes private homes, and, you know, we don't know if there, somebody enters a private home and uh, there's a home invasion and they kill the family uh, with firearms. We don't know if the the family was uh, had firearms of their own. If there was a gun, that was a gun-free zone or whatever. But they classify things like that. They basically would have classified the shootings in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at the reserve center and the recruiting center as not gun-free zones, even though our sailor, sailors and Marines were not allowed to carry weapons. And they classified that as not gun-free zones because they said, "Well, the police in Chicago, in Chattanooga, I had had firearms." So they really skewered this thing, and then we had a group called the Crime Prevention Research Center. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yes, yes. That's, uh, that's I think, John Lott's group, yeah. Yeah, well, they, did a, they took the same data and did their own study and said that between January 2009 and July 2014, 92% of the mass shootings had actually been in gun-free zones. Now, we have the President of the United States threatening to come out with new executive orders, new executive actions, which, of course, are unconstitutional, but he does them anyway, and Congress doesn't do anything about them. What do you see the next moves are by the President to try to put more gun control uh, on the people in this country? Well, I think he's already forecast that by by saying that he's going to issue more and more executive orders. His next move, according to his... uh, interpreters or his supporters is going to be to try to uh, cut down on the or to increase the number of uh, background checks t- 
to make it more and more difficult for people to obtain firearms. See, now a person who, uh, a group that sells fewer than a certain number of firearms a year is not really required to have a license in order to do that. And uh, he's going to require all of all of these all of these people to have licenses and to conduct background checks on uh, on every firearm. So that that means, for instance, Mike, if you had uh, say, say you had about ten guns and you wanted to get rid of them, you had no further use of them and they were cluttering up your house. You were, you were moving and so on. And you wanted to sell them <laughs> uh, as as the as the situation stands now, you could sell them legally, but under Obama's proposal, uh, if if approved by the ATF, you would have to get a federal firearms dealer's license and conduct a background check on everybody to whom you sold the firearm. So that that's it just you know it's just trying to make things difficult, more and more difficult for people. But the the fact is. You know, Obama and others who who have not been able to get their program through Congress have felt very frustrated through, with that, and have tried to resort to this uh, executive order idea in order to increase their control over the ability of people to acquire and use firearms. That's what well, let's really hold, hold that thought, John. So we need to take a break now, and we'll be okay. back in just a minute. Okay. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law Case, the Obama Eligibility Cases, the NDAA Illegal Detention Issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, again, my guest today is John uh, Snyder, who is basically known as the, the gun dean in uh, Washington, D.C. and around the country because of his expertise in the, on the Second Amendment and all the different So, Hello? yeah, you're still there. Yeah, I'm just, things are breaking up a little bit. I don't know why, but I, I can hear you. Okay. 
Well, John and I, before the break, uh, we were talking about the ramifications of new executive orders or executive actions or president calls them all kinds of different things that are unconstitutional. But the, the new things that he's planning to do, and one of which is to require someone like me, uh, if I wanted to sell some of my private firearms, of course, I'm not admitting private firearms, but if I wanted to sell, had someone wanted to sell them, I would have to get a federal gun license or uh, a federal firearms license to do it. Now, I represented, when I was practicing law, people that had those licenses, and they were nightmares. Number one, they were very expensive, and number two, it was very time-consuming to fill out all the forms. Is that still the way it is today, John? Oh, I think it's very, very difficult, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, the number of federal firearms licensees keeps decreasing, at least partially because of the uh, the, the paper burdens they, they put on people and more and more and you know, more and more regulations regarding the necessity of compliance with certain parts of the form and so on and so forth. Uh, the government the go- government is trying to reduce the, the access as much as they possible to firearms on the part of the public. And one of the ways they think they can do that is by uh, reducing the number of dealers who can uh, provide firearms legitimately to to uh, law-abiding citizens. So it's something we have to just have to contend with and fight as much as possible. Um, this is just, you know, an, another aspect of the whole overall battle regarding the right of citizens to be able to pre- protect themselves, their own lives, and their lives, the lives of the loved ones from uh, criminals of various sorts. It's, you know, it's just it's just the way things are today. And will continue to be unless and until there are ma- major political changes uh, that will redirect the uh, activities of government. At least that's in, that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, I I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, but that brings up a subject though about the uh, federal firearms licenses. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the judgment that was rendered by a jury in Wisconsin over the last couple of days against a gun dealer there because two police officers sued the gun dealer because they had been shot by a criminal who had used a straw buyer to get a gun for himself. And that gun was in use at the crime. Uh, what's, what's your feelings about that? Oh, that's terrible. As a matter of fact, a law was passed some years ago uh, prohibiting lawsuits against so-called third parties that is, people who sold uh, firearms to people who then committed crimes. Now, I don't know. How, I don't know how this jury got to the point where they did. I didn't, you know, didn't see the pleadings or anything on on the on the side of either one. But this is another avenue we're going to have to watch out for: the attempt on the part of uh, anti-gun owner lawyers to get juries to award these outrageous uh, settlements against people who provide firearms, because the, you know. A firearms dealer can provide a, far, a firearm quite legitimately to somebody, and then somebody can use that firearm or sell it to somebody else or give it to somebody else who then use it, uses it in a crime. And there is no good reason on account of which the uh, the legitimate dealer ought to be uh, in trouble in any way for that. It seems to me uh, that's like that's that's like saying that uh, uh, a gas station owner who sells gas to somebody who 
who then uses uses that gas in his car to rob a bank somehow is responsible for the bank robbery. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense, you see. But that's no. that's what we're up against. Yeah, and Hillary Clinton, right after the shootings in Oregon, came out and called for repeal of the law that you're talking about, which is a federal right. law which pr- yeah. protects both gun dealers and manufacturers from being mm-hmm. sued. Because we know that in the past, people have tried to sue gun manufacturers because a gun that they manufactured was used somewhere down the line in a crime against somebody, and they tried to sue them, and they, they never won. But the federal law was passed to protect them. Hillary Clinton is now calling for repeal of that law, and so is Barack Obama. You think Obama is going to try to use an executive action to do something to uh, destroy that law? Mike, I would not be the least bit surprised. I'm I'm sure that uh, he has lawyers in the Justice Department, or at least one section of the Justice Department, trying to figure out ways in which he could could, uh, do that in any way that he could. I really wouldn't put anything past that guy at this point. He he's just got he's just got he's got an infatuation against gun owners. But I think a lot of these uh, extreme left-wing politicians have that they 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 simply cannot conceive of the viability of an average guy having a gun or an average girl having a gun. It, it's just something com- completely beyond their 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 ways of thinking. <laughs> And so they try to conform the world to their way of thinking, no matter how how ridiculous it may be. So yes, I, I'm I'm sure that he would try through executive order if he could to implement this idea. I, I don't think I put anything past the guy, frankly. Yeah, I unfortunately agree, and I think Hillary will be the same same when she gets elected. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah, she's just as bad. Like one of my favorite sayings, and we actually turned it into a bumper sticker. Uh, you know, I worked together with the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Was the Second Amendment ain't about duck hunting? And well, sure, it's it's about protection. Exactly, and not just protection from criminals, but protection from the government. Am I right? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the uh, the Second Amendment protecting the individual right to keep and bear arms in my opinion, really is the linchpin of our Bill of Rights because it enables people to protect themselves and others against encroachments against them and other people on on other rights. You know, like, well, another big thing now is religious liberty. You know, the government's trying to infringe on that. And uh, various, you know, they're trying to cut down on freedom of speech by calling things hate speech and saying you can't say this about somebody or that about somebody. And the, the, the guarantee protecting those freedoms is the right to keep and bear arms. So things are getting rough in this country, Mike, as I'm sure you're aware. Unfortunately, you're correct. And But I'm, I make speeches, I'm making speeches all over the country about the the gun rights situation regarding our veterans and, and regarding Social Security. Well, sure, that's, sure. Yeah, that's another another big issue trying to trying to cut down on the on the ability of veterans to own firearms by saying if a, if a poor guy comes back, if, if a guy in a soldier say he's been in Iraq or one of the one of the war zones and he's he, he's uh, temporarily mentally disturbed because of that, 
they're they're going to try to use that against him to prevent him from owning a gun ever in his life. And of course, he he's just he's done something of service to his country, and maybe he's been in a jeep that's been blown up. Maybe he's lost his leg. I mean, he maybe have been close to being killed. And they're 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 warring against our veterans. Terrible. Well, there are twenty three million of us out there. And we oh, all took the same oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And That's we believe force. in that oath. That's a force, Mike. Mm-hmm. That's, it really is. You know, but there's a lot of people out there who have been trained to defend the Constitution and don't owe our allegiance to Obama, but owe it to the Constitution. But, but uh, I want to get your opinion on, on one aspect of this that I've been covering really for the last two and a half years and didn't believe when I first heard about it. But they're not just declaring veterans mentally ill because they've been injured in combat or because they've had PTSD. They are classifying veterans as incompetent to handle their own financial affairs and therefore incapable of owning guns, and then they're turning that name over to the FBI, and the FBI puts them on the next list under the category of being mentally defective to the point of being a danger to themselves or others. And according to Senator Chuck Grassley, who's working with his Senate Judiciary Committee on this, mm-hmm. 99.3% of the people on the list in that category are veterans. But let me no, tell you just letter, letters I've got seen in, in writing from the VA telling veterans they're being declared incompetent because they've had been depression any time in their lives, because of minor PTSD, because of physical disabilities, because they let their spouses pay the family bills or because they have their bills paid automatically out of checking accounts. Now, have you heard about any of this? I've heard that referred to in various uh, various Internet articles. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, they're, 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 these guys are really, uh, really crazy on this gun issue. They really are. Uh, they're scared to death of people with guns is what it amounts to, I think. Yeah. And they they better be careful because the act of military may turn against them. You know, you see, yeah. you see, you see pictures. You see pictures of, of Obama uh, addressing uh, addressing groups, and he has uh, you know a bu- you know a bunch of soldiers there in uniform, and half of them look half asleep. They don't want to listen to him, you know. So, so well, I, think I, with, I think they're playing with fire. You know, I can tell you from the standpoint of having two sons still on active duty in the military that uh, the morale of our military right now is rock bottom. Yes, that, I've heard that from other military people, too. Yes, they're really, really, well, really upset with the government. Well, he's put rules of engagements on them uh, in Afghanistan and other places that have gotten our soldiers and Marines unnecessarily killed. Uh, they cannot fight back. They cannot fight effectively. Uh, he tells them he's going to withdraw him from Afghanistan. Now today is announced that he's probably not going to withdraw anybody from Afghanistan. Uh, but the rules of engagement are such that they can't really put up a fight. That's the right. Taliban is resurging. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just really a difficult situation. But mm-hmm. uh, what's happening with the veterans, you know, we're, we're working with the United States Justice Foundation right now on individual cases for veterans. And we're trying to go out there and raise the money to uh, file a major class action lawsuit. By the way, for my listeners out there, if you 
want to contribute to us, you can go to usjf.net. That's the website. And you can contribute to help us fight the good fight with veterans. But have you been hearing any, any rumblings out there from any veterans you know about the, the fact that they are really getting angry over the situation? Well, I can't say that. that I can't say that uh, that I've talked directly to veterans like that. But I have talked to uh, veterans uh, who have recently come back from uh, the, the various war zones, who have been guests at weddings of young relatives, and they have this, they have expressed their frustration with the inhibitions put on them in engaging uh, enemy in combat. I definitely right, have heard that. I definitely have heard that. Okay, uh, hold that thought, John. We'll take our second break now. Okay. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF. A nonprofit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. I do a Welcome lot of back that. again, and, and uh, thank you for listening in today. Uh, again, my guest is uh, John Schneider, who I worked with for many, many years uh, on, with the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms and the Second Amendment Foundation. And uh, John is now retired from working there, but he's got his own website. He issues press releases. He still deals with the, the gun issue. And uh, as I pointed out at the beginning of the show, if you want to know anything about the Second Amendment, you basically go to talk to John as the Oracle and uh, go to his website. You can access his articles and information. And give me the name of that website again, John. www.gunrightspolicies.org. That's Gun Rights Policies. It's p- plural. P-O-L-I-C-I-E-S. It's gunrightspolicies.org. And people can people can have access uh, to the material that I've put out on the uh, on YouTube, too, because there's a little flag on there for YouTube, and they can get all, all of my uh, videos on that. I've done over 200 of them, so 
Oh wow! It looks like I got my work cut out for me. <laughs> I don't want to watch those. Yeah, I, I try to do about one or two a week, and do uh, do three news releases a week on the firearms and related subjects. Well, have you heard anything about the? Now, I predicted this on my blog, oh, about five or six months ago, because at the U.S. Justice Foundation, we were getting, uh, we were filing opposition memorandums to new rules and regulations that were coming out of HHS, for example, BATF, all of which it looked to me like were being designed to expand the program against the veterans. And by the way, we've determined that there are about 200,000 veterans right now on the mix list, and 99.9% of them don't belong there. But uh, they were going to expand the program to include Social Security recipients, and we're going to do the same, same thing to them declare them incompetent to handle their own financial affairs and then put them on the next list. Now, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Times, Times confirmed that about a month ago, as did some members of Congress who wrote to the Social Security Administration. What's your take on all of this, John? Well, it's, it's, it's outrageous, of course, but it's another, it's another attempt on the part of the government to limit our freedom. Now, take, take these Social Security people. There may, there may be people who... Uh, who are older and they're on Social Security, and as, as a result of that, they uh, have to have, have somebody help them and so on. But there's no reason on account of which they shouldn't have a gun because they're perfectly competent to handle a firearm. Uh, but that, but the, but the government, the Obama administration, is using that as an excuse to try to interfere with the right of these people to uh, have the firearms they need to defend themselves. And then, of course, that means they're not able to be able to, since they're not able to obtain firearms, they're not able to give them to, to their offspring or anybody else to whom they'd leave them after they're gone. It's it's uh, it's part and parcel of the government program scared to death of people with guns. You know, they're really uh, it's it's really quite a phenomenon, but that they're just you know to see to see that the the, the government the government oriented type mentality cannot conceive of people being free, of being able to do things without government directing them to do or not to do something. And that's what's really behind it. It's it's the mindset that a lot of these people have and they never get rid of it. They but the the underlying the underlying the underlying thing is their inability to conceive of individual freedom as a good they don't. They think only only good comes from the government. Just they don't. They don't have. They don't have any aspect of. They don't have any idea of natural right or God given right or anything like that. They're from a different world philosophically than we are. That's just that's just the way it is. Well, I I point out in my articles and speeches that that's exactly what the Constitution was designed to protect us from. Exactly, the Constitution is designed to protect the the people in in the country against that attitude on the part of government uh, and on the part of people who are in government. It's 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 to it's to free the people from that kind of government mentality. That's right. Yeah, our founding fathers, you know, set up a brand new form of government. They didn't know if it was going to work. And they wanted us to have the right to keep and bear arms because that's what had gotten us loose from the, the tyranny of the British king. 
and they didn't want the new government they were forming here in this country to become a tyranny without the American people having the wherewithal to, to stop it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's, it's very interesting that people come to the United States because they want freedom. It was very interesting. I was at a, uh, I was at a party over the weekend, and uh, I was sitting next to a fellow who's, uh, who's a doctor, emigrated from China, and I was explaining to him, who's, who's getting a little bit aware of our government, uh, one of the one of the reasons that we put put such an emphasis on freedom, and he said he understood that very well. He said that uh, when he uh, graduated from medical school, he wanted to be an internist, a general practitioner, and the government told him that he had to be an anesthesiologist, and he had no desire whatsoever to be an anesthesiologist. So the first chance first chance he got, he uh, managed to emigrate with his family to the United States, and he's a great supporter of American freedom. And as in our conversation, he, which, in which he brought up the, you know, the firearms issue, I, and which I explained, I explained to him, he said he could understand theori- theoretically and exactly and practically why that was, why that was the case. So, um, you know, it's it's an idea which was valid at the time of the American Revolution and the setting up of our Constitution, and it's valid today and appreciated by people from all over the world. That's why they come here. That's why they want to come here. They want to come here for freedom. And one of the reasons we have the freedom is because we have the right to keep and bear arms, which is an integral freedom. Hmm. Just something... Let me ask you this, John, as a, and this is important to my listeners because people are always asking me, well, you know, we're, we're being fairly effective in fighting the federal government, at least to a certain extent. Uh, the Congress is not passing new uh, gun restriction restrictive laws. But a lot of states and cities around the country are. And you live oh, yeah, in Bethesda. You, you, you're very familiar with Maryland and the situation there. And, of yeah. course, you got the draconian gun laws in, in New York. And uh, mm-hmm. as the dean of the lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and somebody who is uh, probably one of the best at, at lobbying on the gun issue, how do people go about fighting this on a local and state level? Well, I think it's very effective to be to be in, in local groups that... Uh, that are like-minded and the fight the fight against these uh, various regulations, and it's it's important to, uh, as a group, approach local legislators, and it, it's uh, it's important I think for uh, people to to choose their probably their their best spokesman or spokeswoman when they go to see these legislatures. That is the most articulate, the most knowledgeable, and so on, in order to make a good presentation to somebody. So I would I would think that a demonstration of of numbers plus ability is very important. Uh, the personal touch is obviously the most important, but it's also it's also important to get to get letters to editors, to write letters to local local and state legislators, uh, and 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 keep on writing and make sure they realize that the pablum or the, the nonsense that's being put in, put out by media. Is not is not true. It just simply isn't. Uh, 
So people have to be very active uh, at all levels of, at all levels of government in order to have an influence on the people in government. No question. Well, shouldn't they also people uh, be familiar with the statistics? Now, put together things like mm-hmm. the information that we've been talking about today about the gun-free zones. Uh, is that type of thing? If you have information showing that 92% of the mass killings in this country have occurred in gun-free zones, do you think that would be effective in a state like Maryland when you talk to members of the legislature, if you bring that sort of a material with you? Well, yes, that, that is true. However, in some states, you, you, in some states, Maryland being one of them, you have uh, an ingrained uh, powers that be opposition to certain kinds of thinking, and they, they, simply, they simply will not listen to that. But even even in Maryland, there's there's chance for overcoming opposition. The uh, the uh, current governor of Maryland, for instance, is a Republican. Uh, governor Hogan. He's the son of an he's the uh, son of an old friend of mine, Larry Hogan, who was a member of Congress for many years. Uh, and Larry did what he could while he was in Congress to try to limit the the effects in Congress of certain types. But and he had started in local politics. So there, there is there is a possibility even in hard states like uh, Maryland and New York uh, to get the message out, but it's, it's very very difficult because the entrenched powers that be are so much in opposition to the rights of the people on these issues. It just takes a long time and dedication. Well, people go to your website and uh, look at your YouTube videos. They're going to get a lot of information from you, I would assume, that is going to help in this type of fight on the state and local level. Oh, sure, sure. I've, I've, I've laid out the various arguments over the years, uh, and people can use those arguments uh, in arguing arguing with their legislators or making presentations to other people in their communities. But I think your your radio program is a great source, also. I mean, you you bring you bring out the truth here and on your websites, and uh, people have people who are interested in, in these subjects and in the right to keep and bear arms and other other rights have to just keep up to date with all the information that's available on these websites, and keep fighting, keep fighting. You know that we've heard the we keep we keep hearing referred to over and over the Burke statement that the only the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing, and so we have to do a lot to overcome these to overcome these evils in our society. We simply just have to. Well, exactly. And well, we're about to have to go to our third hard break here in a minute. Uh, but after we do, what I'd like to do, John, is is have you think about this during break. Uh, what do you think are the most effective arguments? For people to use when going to their state legislatures, legislative members in states that are sort of borderline, like some of the states in the Midwest and some of the states in the South. Uh, think about that, and then let's take our break now, and then we'll talk more. Okay, sure. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. 
USJF, a non-profit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on again, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, good to be back with you. And uh, before we took the break, uh, I asked John to think about some ideas of what the best arguments to do or to get use are in trying to defeat gun control legislation being proposed in states and local governments. And uh, John, by the way, uh, for those of you that may be just tuning in, is called the gun dean of lobbyists in Washington. I worked with John for many, many years when we were both with the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Uh, he was the public affairs director. I was on the board. And uh, John was the treasurer of the uh, Second Amendment Foundation. I was a contributor to them. I, I wrote articles for them and, and did some legal consultation with them. And so John and I have worked together on the issue of Second Amendment rights for a long time. And if you want to find out information about the Second Amendment, you need to go to his website and check it out. I'll have him give you that again in a minute. But John, specifically for my listeners, because I have listeners all over the country, and a lot of them are asking me all the time, how do we effectively fight against gun control on the state and local level? And these are people in states where they're not like Maryland, they're not like California, they're not like New York, where the decision has basically already been made, and the, the far-left Democrats control the both houses of the state legislature, and usually the uh, governor's mansion. But what about states in the Midwest, or on the East Coast, places like North Carolina, South Carolina, Iowa? Uh, how do people there, the grassroots people, approach their state legislators or city council members, what arguments do they use to try to block gun control? I think it's very important to, to personalize these issues as much as possible so that uh, 
it becomes definitive in the mind of the legislature that it is very meaningful to the person making the argument. I, I remember many years ago, now, now this was in Congress, I was testifying on one of the firearms issues, and I remember asking the senator who was posing the questions to me, I said to him, what would you do if you were threatened? And he said, I'd call security. And I said, I, I said back to him, that's just, the, that's, that's just the thing. You're a senator. You can call security. But the average citizen can't call security. He's got he's to provide his own security. And the, the senator who was taken, taken aback by that because he hadn't thought of it in those terms. That's why I say it's very important to uh, to make it personal. Now, somebody who's, who's in legislature, state legislature, is probably surrounded all the time by law enforcement or security types and so on, and he doesn't he doesn't or he or she doesn't think about what could happen to him in a situation which can occur for a, a citizen who is not in the legislature. So that's why if a citizen can. Can, can make it some kind of reference to that. It's it's very important. Also, of course, it's it's important to be able to use statistics, uh, many of which are available through a lot of scholars who've developed a lot of statistics on these things, and uh, uh, that's available on, on a number of different websites. Or, you know, but uh, it's important to make that that information personal, and if if possible, in a local community, to bring up a situation in which somebody has used a firearm to protect a family. There was, there was a case not long ago I saw where a, a, a young child stopped a burglary in the house because his parents had showed him how to use a shotgun. And he was able to prevent a burglary because because of, his, of the ability to use the shotgun. Uh, so those are, those are very important. So I would say statistics backed up by personal experience and by a conveying of what it means to the individual to be able to defend his life, her life, or the lives of their children or other family members. Uh, I think that's, that's very important because that's basically what it is. The right to keep and bear arms essentially is a right-to-life issue because you're, you, you, you have the right to keep and bear arms in order to protect your life and freedom and security, not only of yourself but of your community. In, in the larger picture, of course, of the country, but you were asking about, you know, these certain states, but it, I think it's very important to get that point across to legislatures to indicate to them that if they pass laws restricting the ability of law-abiding people to be able to defend themselves, they're really undercutting the rights of their own constituents. Let them know that it's their constituents they're talking and they're dealing with the rights of their of the people who vote to vote to put them in office. I would think it would be a good idea too to, and I think you alluded to this, to have people who have had personal experiences, either positive or negative. For example, people who have been able to defend their homes against intruders because they had a firearm, and other cases where somebody has lost a loved one or been injured themselves because they did not have a firearm because they that's, were, were not able, because of the city ordinance or something, to have a firearm in their home. Uh, I think that type of testimony would be very important to a that's, legislative that's, committee. That's, 
that's very that's very meaningful. And then you then you then you can back that up with statistics indica- indicating that guns are used uh, a million times a year or more to defend property or life or something like that. But it's important to get the personal experience. In in my opinion, it's more effective. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, and and uh, I know that uh, when you go before a legislative committee, and I, I used to do this frequently when I lived in Louisiana, and uh, I would go testify before a legislative committee, it's always nice if you can have the members of the audience, if you can pack the place to have people back you back you up, and uh, I know that... Uh, we had uh, one situation, which I think listeners are getting a kick out of, and this was many, many years ago, where they were trying to impose a so-called Saturday Night Special bill in Louisiana, where certain handguns that they labeled Saturday Night Specials were going to be banned because they were easily accessed by criminals and were basically cheap handguns. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to a friend of mine who ran a, a huge gun store, sporting goods store, and I told him to look at the specifications they were using and to give me the handgun, any handgun that would fit in that. And he brought me out a $2,000, now we're talking about the 1970s here, a $2,000 handgun, basically silver-plated, that fit yeah. exactly in those specifications. Well, I used it to show it to the committee uh, at the hearing, and then basically that pretty much shot down the arguments. But then I was followed by a member of the ATB ATF who got up and was talking about how deplorable it was in the state of Louisiana that the there were no gun control laws whatsoever to speak of. And see, we had packed the audience in that, that House committee. I mean, it was mm-hmm. full of people. And this guy, BTB ATF agent, goes, do you know that right now in the city of Baton Rouge, a person could walk down the middle of the street carrying a machine gun? And that's legal, and the audience broke into wild applause and cheers. And I'll never forget the look <laughs> on that ATS agent's face when he looked around, like, "Oh boy, I mean, you know, I'm way out of my element here." But the, you know, I think they gave the proposal got one vote. But to me, that's an important aspect of it too: is to have your people there to outnumber right. the opposition. That's that's right, Mike. I've been talking about that Saturday night Saturday night special issue, which they refer to as cheap handguns. You can turn it right around and saying you're trying to de- 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 deny poor people the right to defend themselves. Yeah, that was, you want to ban cheap handguns. Yeah, that was definitely another good argument that we use. Was you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of people can't afford two thousand dollar handguns. <laughs> right, exactly. I yeah. couldn't afford one. Still can't afford one. But uh, well, John, it's uh, we're going to have to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. But uh, before we do, uh, tell people how they can access your website again. Okay, it's www.gunrightspolicies.org. And they can also uh, they can also write to me, they can email me at uh, gundean at gmail.com. That is G-U-N-D-E-A-N at gmail.com. And they can also have uh, buy your books through that website or find out how to buy your book, correct? That's correct, yes. Well, I encourage everybody to go to John's website to keep up with his press releases, uh, to check out his YouTube videos, 
Because if you want information on the Second Amendment and gun rights in this country and pending gun legislation, anything related to our Second Amendment rights, this is the guy, the go-to guy. This is the person you need to talk to. You need to email him if you have questions. You need to support him and his website and, you know, utilize this. This is a resource that I can guarantee from my years of experience with John, this is a resource you don't want to pass up. And in the meantime, if you want to go to usjf.net and support the United States Justice Foundation, you can read my articles that I post on my blog there, and uh, you can read the recent one that I wrote about the gun-free zones, and you can find out how to support the USJF, and I work in, on behalf of veterans, and you can go to my website at michaelconnelly.com and find out about the books I've written and that sort of thing. John, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you again. And let's Likewise, Mike, it's, it's re- really great. It's great to hear from you and to talk with you and to know you're doing so well and that your program is, is such a good one. Well, I appreciate that. Let's don't wait 10 years again before we talk. In fact, you'll probably be hearing from me in the next few days. Great, great. All right, thank you, John. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.